Good evening, church. Today's scripture reading is taken from 2 Samuel 15, 1 to 12. 2 Samuel 15, verses 1 to 12. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is of such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I would judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshua in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Genolite, David's counsellor, from his city, Gilom. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the gospel. The gospel is taken from the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 6, beginning on the 27th verse. Glory to Christ our Saviour. Luke, chapter 6, verse 27 to verse 36. But I tell you who hear me, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, 
And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners loathe those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the Gospel of Christ. Praise to Christ our Lord. Church, will you please be seated? Before I begin the ministry of the Word, I've been asked to do this important announcement, and it is really regarding our family day uh, that is coming up on the 26th of uh, June, 4.30 p.m. And let me just say that, you know, for many of us, the two years of lockdown and Zoom gathering is over, and we can now finally gather together physically. And what better way to do that than to come together for our family day again, which is on the 26th of June, uh, 4.30 p.m. And so I'm here to invite each and every one of you, all right, whether you are young or old, let's come together as a church, as a family of God, all right? It will be a time where we will have a fun, games, a time of bonding, and of course, we cannot do without makan, right? All right? So there will be food, but because of food catering, we do need you to register. And again, the link is all up there. So we need you to register so that we are able to cater the enough and necessary food. All right, and just to give you a glimpse of what is going to happen. Yeah, pastors have to do all this. Like, I don't know why, man. All right, just to get you a glimpse of what's going to happen. Huh? I mean, us to do this. Okay, so just to get you to know what's going to happen. All right, so let's come together. Once again, the date is 26 June on Sunday at 4.30. Right, with that, shall we just prepare our hearts as we come together to listen to the word of the Lord this evening. And today, and today as we gather together, we finally end our study on the life of David. And we're going to cover today the next seven chapters of 2 Samuel. So brace yourself. But not to worry, okay? We're not going to cover all the seven chapters. But because you see that all these chapters are related together to the sermon topic for today, we will, however, focus on a couple of them, and, and for the rest, we will just touch briefly on it, all right? And so for today, we'll find and we'll learn from David the important lesson on how to be magnanimous towards those who offend us. And so with that, let's bow our heads as we commit this time to the Lord in prayer. <clears throat> so gracious and heavenly Father, we once again... Thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of David that we have gone through over the last six months or so. Thank you, Lord, for the many lessons that we can learn from this character. And we teach us that now as we end our series on David, teach us truly what it means to be magnanimous. Teach us what it means to be merciful, to be forgiving to those who may offend us. So once again, Holy Spirit, we invite you to be in our midst. Guide our thoughts, our thinking, that whatever we do will bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. <coughs> Amen. <coughs> 
So to bring us then into context, thus far we find that in the first 10 chapters of 2 Samuel, we have seen how God empowered David to defeat his enemies and then installed him as the undisputed king over all of Israel. And during his reign, we find that the shepherd king was able to establish as well as to expand the kingdom. All seems to go on well until we have this episode that we mentioned last week in chapters 11 and 12. And what happened there? We discovered that David committed the sins of adultery, deception, and murder, resulting in the death of his unborn son. Now what followed then? From chapters 13 onwards, all the way to chapter 20, we find out a series of calamities which begin to plague within the king's family, where Absalom, David's third and favorite son, being the chief actor in this whole entire drama. And as I mentioned, it started here in chapter 13. And as a summary to what happened, we are told that in chapter 13, Amnon, who is the firstborn of David, an heir to the throne, he somehow suddenly had a lust for his half-sister, Tamar. Now, this sounds rather gross, isn't it? For a brother to have sexual thoughts over his sister. But that was exactly what happened. And this just goes to show that, you know, what can happen in a household when sin is not curbed, when sin is not corrected, when sin is not being addressed. But as the story continues to tell us, that this last so enraged Amnon, that in verse 2, it says that he was tormented. He was tormented to the point that he ended up being sick. And so using this as an excuse, he persuaded David to summon Tamar to nurse him or to manja him. But this only gave Amnon the opportunity to violate his sister. And after doing so, he developed a hatred for her before discarding her. And so we enter now Absalom. Tall, handsome, popular, but undisciplined and very ambitious, he recognized that avenging his sister was, you know, an opportunity to get ahead of the rest of his brothers as well as to the throne. So what did he do? For the next two years, he cunningly planned and waited for the right moment to execute what he wanted to do in getting rid of his brother Amnon as, rest, as well as the rest of his siblings. On the pretext of a feast of sheep shearing, he invited all of the king's son, and with one felt swoop, he alienated all of them, except for Solomon, who was too young to participate. And for this murderous plot, we are further told in the story that Absalom now fled, knowing that his father had realized this and he's going to be punished. He fled to a man named Talmah. And Talmah was the king of Geshu. And based on 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 3, we discovered that this man Talmah so happened to be Absalom's grandfather. So this means Absalom is fleeing to a place where he can have refuge. It was a place where he felt safe. It was a place where he felt welcome. It was a place that he knew that his father would not be able to get to him. But as the story again continues on, this exile didn't last long. 
Because under the prompting of David's commander-in-chief, Joab, they were soon reconciled again. But sadly, sadly, this reconciliation only led to a greater disaster. It led to Absalom revolting against his father. And for the second time in his life, David had to make the wilderness his home. And this is where we come to our passage in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Now, what would your reaction be when someone that you value, when someone that you trust, when someone that you believe in, you have invested your life in, out of the blue, suddenly turns around and betrays you? What would your reaction be? Or maybe perhaps that person suddenly stabs you in the back and desire to take your position. What would you do? Well, I believe many of us would probably react with anger followed by, you know, some plot of revenge. An eye for an eye, we would say. Do unto others what others would do unto us. We wrongly quote the scriptures. And we have already seen what Absalom did. His reaction was one of violence. Knowing that his sister was violated, he decided to take revenge. But interestingly, you find that in the case of David, we find here in chapter 15 that when his son Absalom revolted and rebelled against him, you know, David could have simply blamed his counsellor Ahitopel. He could have blamed the fickleness of his soldiers for deserting him or even he could have retaliated. But he didn't. He didn't. And reading from where Charlotte had stopped, we see David reacted rather differently. As Absalom's power and control increase, as we continue on in verse 15, we find David began to move swiftly to ensure that innocent life was spared. If you look with me to the Bible again, you'll find this passage. He gave this instruction as found in verse 14. He says this, Arise, let us flee, or else there'll be no escape from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now, here's an interesting thought for us to consider. Why did David fled? Why did David have to run away? Because when you think about this, wasn't he the rightful king? Couldn't he have stayed on to defend his throne? After all, we know that he's God's anointed one. And what Absalom was doing was not in line with God's plan. So why did David fled? Was he a coward? Was he afraid? You know, as I reflect on this verse, it is clear that David did what he did because, simply because he did not want Jerusalem, the city of God, to be a scene of a bloody battle. For him, if he were to recover the throne, they must not involve the city nor its inhabitant. You see, the truth of the matter is this. David did not run away in defeat. David did not run away out of fear. He did so simply to avoid any unnecessary bloodshed and more so for the love of his son. And here is a sign of true meekness. 
And so as David moved out of the city together with the people with him, he began to offer the release of his men, which include this man called Itai the Gittite. He says in verse 19, Why do you also go with us? He told Itai, Go back and save the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile from home. <coughs> you see, often when we have a disagreement with someone, when we clash with someone, or maybe husband and wife, you know, when you have a disagreement, we tend to get those from the outside to support our cause so as to put down the opposition. We want people to support us. We want people to cite us. And you find that David could have simply done the same thing by influencing Itai, by saying, hey, you know, what Absalom did is a terrible thing. He shouldn't have done it. He could have simply influenced Itai, knowing that he was a very loyal servant. But instead, what we learn here is that David didn't do this. Instead, what David did was he presented this man a chance to disengage from his family affairs. David chose not to get others involved in his personal dispute. He did not want to implicate others. So we find that this is the first thing that David did when he was faced with this difficulty. And as for the second response, we find that David chose not to manipulate God. Now, again, let me pose this question for all of us. How many times have we bargained uh, with God when we are, happen to be in a tight spot? Or maybe for some of us, you know, when we discover you have some health issue, you know, and so you bargain with God. And to be honest, I think we all can agree that we have been guilty of doing this, isn't it? We've been guilty of, at times, manipulating God, where we reason that, Lord, you know, if you help me off, help me out of this predicament, I will read the Bible more. I will be more punctual. I'll be more regular for service. I'll be more consistent in our tithes and giving. We manipulate God. We bargain with God. And then when everything goes on fine, back to normal. We, we don't do all these things. And again, as I say, I think if we are guilty, we are all, if we're honest, we are all guilty of this. But you find in this particular crisis, David refused. He refused to try and manipulate God. Because if you look with me to verse 24, we find that as he and his loyal followers, as they continue to make the escape, who will meet them at the gate? Who will meet them at the gate but the priest Zadok? And what was the priest doing? Together with the Levites, they were carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And again, as we already established way back, maybe two, three sessions back, We've really established that the ark was a symbol of God's presence. And David, you know, probably recalled long ago back at the battle of Shiloh in 1 Samuel chapter 4, where the Israelites, you know, when they were fighting with the Philistines, they tried to manipulate God by doing what? By carrying this ark into battle. Thinking that by with the ark, God's presence is with me, you know, we will have the victory. Again, if you recall the episode, instead of victory, the Israelites were defeated that day 
resulting in the ark being captured by the Philistines. And so we find that David was well aware that he could not use this physical symbol to manipulate God. Or worse, you know, maybe the people will think that this is a superstitious object that could protect them. Like some of us, you know, if we are not <coughs> strong Christian, we think by that by wearing a cross over our neck, you know, that cross is able to protect us from all harm. We see it as a supernatural, superstitious object that is able to manipulate God. And that is what David didn't want to happen. And that is why you find that in verse 25, <coughs> when he saw Sadok and the priest carrying the ark, he gave the priest this instruction. He says, no, carry the ark of God back to the city. <coughs> he didn't want to place his hope on something that is, you know, just an object. Rather, David revealed to us next where he placed his hope in. <coughs> and if we move on to verse 30, and verse, uh, verse 30 to verse 37 of chapter 15, we find that David placed his hope in God. And verse 30 begins with these very words. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. Now, here's another thought for us to consider. Why was David weeping? Why was David weeping? You know, some have argued here that <coughs> maybe David was weeping uh, because it is a sign of sadness for his son. He was crying, you know, because his favorite son, Absalom, rebelled against him. So he was sad. That's why he was weeping. Again, some may even argue that, you know, that though this may be true, that, that he was weeping, that instead of being angry over Absalom's action, he was mourning for his son. But also, some have argued, and it's important for us to understand here, that David's weeping is also seen as a sign of helplessness. It is an interpretation as a cry unto the Lord for assistance. He's weeping because he's turning to God. He's crying to God and saying, Lord, you are my hope. You know the situation that I'm facing. I need you. Because when you look again with the passage here in verse 31, that as David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olive weeping, we are told that when news reached David that his trusted aide Ahitophel had defected and betrayed him. Listen to the king's prayer to the God of hope. He prayed to God this in verse 31. He says, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahitophel into foolishness. God, David placed his hope, his trust in his God when situations didn't turn out well for him. The question for us then is this. Who do we place our hope on when things don't go the way we plan? <clears throat> when the situation turns out for the bad, where or who do we place our hope on? Do we place our hope on a good friend, a family member? Well, they may be there to help us. But as we know, as humans, we all fail. 
the best person that we can place our hope on is none other than God and God alone. And this is why <coughs> the psalmist in Psalm 42 offers us this word of wisdom when all seems doomed. The psalmist says these words, Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? And then he gives us the answer. Hope in God. Hope in who? Hope in God. But we find that it is the next four chapters that we see the best of David under extreme and difficult circumstances. Again, when others may seek vengeance for the wrongs done towards them, we find that David was in no way vindictive, but rather, he was magnanimous. And to be magnanimous simply means this. It is to be generous in forgiving an insult or an injury that is done to you. To be magnanimous means to be free <coughs> from petty resentfulness or vindictiveness. And we find that David displayed this to his many offenders in the following way. Firstly, it was reported that as we move on to chapter 16 of verse 5, we find that as David continues his escape from his son Absalom, his entourage arrived at a place called Bahurim. And there was a man named Shimei, not Simea, Shimei, all right, who was the son of Gera. And what did this man do? We are told that as David entered into this place, Shimei began to continuously curse and threw stones at David. In other words, David and his men, they were attacked both in a verbal as well as physical manner. I don't know about you, but perhaps some of us, you know, to receive a barrage of criticism is bad. You know, to, to get bad comments is still bearable. But to receive both verbal and physical attack at the same time? Well, I don't know. For some of us, this may be a way bit too much for any person to take. And not surprisingly, our story continues to tell us that when Shimei did this, one of David's men volunteered. He says to David, I will take the head of this man. He says, David, let me go and kill this person. But listen, Observe David's response of grace. Look with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11. When this man, Abisha, told David, I want to take the head of Shimei, David's response was this. He told Abisha, leave him alone. Let him curse. It's okay. Let him do what he wants. And then you see, when you fast forward on to chapter 19, <coughs> when eventually the coup was finally over, and David was transported back as king over all of Israel, <laughs> we discovered that lo and behold, who would come to see the king? The same man, Shimei. He would come once again with a thousand men from the tribe of Benjamin to do what? To seek forgiveness. And interestingly again, we find that it was Abisha, the man who firstly wanted to kill Shimei, again urged David, 
this man doesn't deserve your forgiveness. Let me kill him. And yet again, yet again, we find that David chose magnanimity by rebuking Abisha a second time and willingly pardoned his enemy. And then let's not forget the matter of his rebellious son. If we rewind back to chapter 18, when David eventually confronted Absalom in battle, David had the same attitude of wanting to love the enemy. Because it was recorded in verse 5 of chapter 18 that David instructed Joab, David instructed Abisha, David instructed Ittai, his three trusted generals. He tells them to deal gently with his wayward son. Whereas, you know, many of us would say, my son rebelled against me. Give it to him. But no, David told his trusted general, deal gently with Absalom. And then when eventually he was told to the king that Absalom was killed, David didn't rejoice. Verse 33 tells us that he felt only grief. That even after the battle was over, when you find that those who supported and backed Absalom, they returned to their homes. Many of us want to say, I want to take revenge. You know, I want to be vindicated. These people who supported Absalom deserve to be punished. But what did David do? David bore no grudge against them. Once again, he preferred to overcome evil with good. David preferred to be magnanimous. He did not rush to seek revenge of the leaders of the conspiracy. Instead of confrontation, he offered them a chance to redeem themselves. Instead of reprisal, he offered friendship. And truly what's amazing, what's amazing was that he could still address his offenders. He called them brothers. He never called them enemies. He called them brothers. Because in verse 19, verse 12 says this. When they seek forgiveness, David's word to them was this. You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. <laughs> and I think many for us, as we are humans, we tend to get upset with one another. Let's be reminded that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. That we are all brothers and sisters of the same family in all saints. And problems and dis disagreement will rise within the church. It's inevitable because we are all humans. We are not perfect. But when that happens, can we do like what David did? Be magnanimous. Forgive one another. And continue to treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in closing, <coughs> we find that throughout our study in the life of David, we can label him as a man of prayer, one who is always of God's heart. <coughs> we can also term him as a warrior, a man of war. Having defeated Goliath at a young age in his, and in his later years, being involved <coughs> in countless battles. There's one area 
I don't know about you, but for me, my study of this life, this character of David, there's one area that really stood out for me. Because I find that David here was essentially a man of peace. David was a man of peace. And we see this in the many incidents of his life. Remember the incident where, where, where he was hiding from Saul and, and Saul came into you know, his presence? Twice the opportunity presented itself and his men urged him, strike Saul down and your problems will be solved. But on each occasion, he declined. Why? Because he was a man of peace. And then when he ascended to the throne, <coughs> what did he do? The first thing he did, he reconciled and made peace with Abner, Saul's commander-in-chief. And he did this because why? For the sake of unity for the nation. And then today, we find that despite his son revolting against him, David, yet again, refused to respond the way that the world does. Take revenge. Punish the offenders. That's what the world will tell us. But rather, David took the path of forgiveness. As I mentioned, the reality of life is there will always be people who will reject you. There will be people who always will go against you or don't support you. In the midst of these trying circumstances, what do we do? The lesson today is not to seek retribution, but to seek reconciliation. Respond not by retaliation, but display magnanimity. Yes, it is difficult. I don't doubt that. It is difficult. But listen to the words of Jesus that was read in the gospel in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. <clears throat> Jesus gives us this word. He says this, But I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Do good to those who love you. No. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who bless you. No. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And as you look into the sermon this evening, you find that really, I think you can agree with me that David did all this, isn't it? He loved his enemy. He did good to those who hate him. He blessed those who curse him. And he prayed for those who abuse him. And as Jesus didn't just tell us this word, because Jesus himself set the example. And he wants us to emulate this example. Because this doesn't just tell you, you know, you forgive your enemies. We find that Jesus himself practiced this. When? When he died on the cross for our sins. And as he hung on the cross, he uttered these very words. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus forgave his debtors. And we as his disciples, we ought to follow and apply this same example as well. So as we close our study on the life of David, the last lesson that I leave to all of us is this. 
Let's learn to be forgiving. Let's learn to seek reconciliation, not revenge. Let's learn to be magnanimous in the face of disaster. Shall we stand? And as we heard the word being shared this evening, we want to respond. We want to respond that we will be like David, that we will emulate the example of Jesus to learn to be magnanimous, to learn to be forgiving, to learn to reconcile always. Why? Because Jesus first did this by dying on the cross for our sins. He forgave us. And because He forgave us, we are expected to do the same for one another. So I'm going to ask Joel to lead us in the song as we do so. Let us make it as a prayer. And let us, for those of us who may be struggling in this area, as I said, I know it's difficult sometimes. I have my share of struggles. I know many have challenged me. They have rejected me. It's difficult, I know. But the lesson today is be magnanimous. Forgive them. Seek reconciliation. And if you have to struggle, may this song, response song, minister to you. May the Lord continue to challenge us to be better. Joel.